Well, good morning and welcome to a continuation of worship together. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. It's been an exciting day, as has already been said, with our opening up of registrations for the dinner table, for opening up the buildings behind us for our children, for what's going to take place on the second floor of this building with an expansion and an increase in our student ministry. I'm very excited about the growth that the Lord's apparently bringing to our campus. And so we're thankful for that. We're also desperately needing wisdom and wanting a way forward. And for our time together this morning. So I would like to invite all of us together to unite our hearts and minds and pray together that we would be very cognizant, very aware, very sentient that our God himself is present by his spirit and dwelling his people. And I think perhaps sometimes we don't get uh, an appreciation of that cosmic spiritual reality. So I want us to pray together in a continued preparation for the remainder of our time together. So if you would please join me in prayer. Father, as we begin this morning to approach your word, we want to do so in silence for a moment. Lord, that you would move by your spirit among all those who are gathered here. And by grace, you would reveal whatever it is that is prohibiting us from hearing from you. A grudge with a brother or sister. Unrepentance, unconfessed sin, anger issues, apathy issues, adultery issues, assault issues, whatever it might be, Father. Would you give us courage to agree with the conviction of your spirit and to heave those things, those thoughts, those words, those deeds at the foot of the cross and to receive grace, to receive mercy. That we would be characterized as a people who doesn't manage our sin but throws it aggressively and frequently at the finished work of your son Jesus. So that, God, nothing stands between your word reaching our world. So that nothing prevents your truth landing in this place. God, we pray that you would be pleased as we call on you as Father, that you would amplify and increase our perception of one another as brother and sister, and that this little family that is gathered, as it was in the previous hour, we bring honor and glory to you. We know that that would be good for us. And so, Father, I pray for wisdom and communication, that you would illumine your word, and then it would land in the hearts and minds of all who are gathered this morning. So we pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in our final sermon in our spring sermon series in the little letter of Second Thessalonians. So I want to bring you up to speed. I want to remind you kind of where we are and how we got there. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there was a little church. It was a young church, only a matter of months old, as a matter of fact. It was just starting to grow. They'd been taught by the very words of God that had been brought to them, and they had been taught by the one who had brought them the very words of God, the Apostle Paul, shown in work 
established by word. There was tactile, physical, sensory, kinesthetic interactions that the Apostle Paul gave them, and then he told them and he taught them, both and. They existed in a time of the church when every church was only maybe about 20 years old at the maximum, or less. Virtually none of the people in this little church in Thessalonica had ever actually seen Jesus. Think about it. They'd never actually seen him in person. Oh, they'd heard all about him. They were familiar with his career, with his ministry. They were familiar with his teaching, with his words. But none of those people there in that dark context, this very western, this Roman seaport of 250,000 people in northern Greece, none of them had ever seen Jesus bodily. And yet, they gave their lives to him. They would have been made familiar with the career of Christ, that he steps out of relative obscurity, out of a little mountain village called Nazareth, and that he ministers with signs and wonders and teachings in the hills of northern Galilee for about three years, doing all kinds of signs and wonders to demonstrate and to declare, I am Messiah. I am the one that your hearts have been longing for. All of the brokenness, all of the darkness, all of the dysfunction, all of the depravity, all of the disease, all of the death, it ends here. <laughs> and it drove him to Jerusalem where he would face not one, not two, not three, but seven speedy trials because he was Messiah. But he wasn't what people expected. He would face seven speedy trials, and he would be declared innocent in every single one until the seventh and final trial. He was found innocent in thought, word, and deed, righteous and holy by the Father, but the Father declares him guilty. And in so doing, pours out all of the wrath, all of the righteous indignation, and the holy judgment on his sendable self, the very Son of God. And he died. This little church sitting in Thessalonica would have heard all of this, and it captivated them somehow, some way. They believed, they were persuaded, they were convinced. And then they would have heard that this Jesus, the Mashiach, the Messiah, he was buried and for three days, but on the third day he rose again, having defeated death, never to taste death again. And because of that, those who loved him and were loved by him would never have to experience death either. That he was seen by over 540 people. And before he ascended to the right hand of God in heaven, he gathered his disciples to him. And he dispatched them to come and see, touch, see, this is not a parlor trick. This is not some sort of illusion. I am alive, and I am alive forevermore, and the keys of death and Hades have been handed to me. Come and see. Now go and tell. And they did. And almost immediately, the opponents of the gospel began to resist and to push back and to try to fence them in and to crush them. And yet they were able to establish little beachheads in places like Antioch up in Syria. And they began to plant little churches as the persecution in Jerusalem intensified, both from the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders. Until finally they realized, we need to scale this thing. The book of Acts begins to show addition, and then it starts to transition into multiplication, and then the book of Acts goes into exponential increase, and then the book of Acts finally just ends with nations, nations, nations. 
as more and more people are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. At some point, a man named Barnabas, who had been in Jerusalem from the beginning, he was a Levite, and he knew that there was somebody that they needed to get on the team to make this thing go global. Saul of Tarsus, who had been murdering Christians, had been radically converted by Jesus and had spent at least three years in the deserts of Arabia being taught by Jesus. And now he was sitting in Cilicia of Tarsus in southeastern Turkey today. Barnabas goes to get him in Acts 11 and says, we have to take this thing beyond the eastern Mediterranean basin. We've got to go global, Paul. And so they set off on their first missionary journey. It doesn't go well. Well, by some standards. They find themselves in the region of Galatia, Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. Paul gets stoned. No, no, not that kind of business trip. They throw rocks at him. He's either killed or he's almost killed, and he ascends to the third heaven and gets even more teaching from Jesus. We don't know what that's about. And he meets his protege, Timothy. They, res- they return back to Antioch. They give a report. Soon thereafter, they start their second missionary journey. That one gets dicey and delicate as well. Paul is sitting again in Galatia, and he's trying to go to Ephesus, but the Spirit of God says, no, Paul, fine, no problem, I'll go north to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus says, no, Paul, Paul goes to sleep. He has a vision of a man from Macedonia, that's northern Greece, saying, please, come over here, we need you over here. (gasps) Whoa, that's Europe, that's Western civilization. And so Paul goes up north through Troas. He collects Dr. Luke. They sail to sea. They go to Philippi. They plant the very first church in Western civilization. It's in Europe first three converts, a wealthy fashionista, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal civil servant in a jail cell. Not your general ingredients for church planting. Those are the first three in Europe. The first church comes from those three. Paul had been beaten and imprisoned wrongly in a dungeon. He has to flee. He goes through Amphipolis and Apollonia. He goes to a place called Thessalonica. Ah, finally, there's a synagogue. And so Paul reasons for over three Sabbaths in the synagogue, pulling up texts like Exodus and Leviticus, pulling up texts like Genesis 12, pulling up texts like Isaiah 55 saying, Jesus, Jesus, he's alive. He's the Messiah. It's him. Look in the text. You have no excuse. It's here. And they were fascinated. They thought, he's really come? It's not what we expected. I know, but I'm telling you, Jesus is Messiah. He is Isaiah 55. He is Psalm 2. He is Psalm 110. He is Leviticus. He is the prophet. He is the king. He is the priest. It's him. And they said, we like this. Tell us more. And Paul said, oh, one more thing. Uh, He's also Messiah for the Gentiles. And then they ran him out of town. And so Paul goes to Berea. And he begins to reason in those synagogues and saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. But the Jews from Thessalonica, well, they're mobile. They have an RV. They go to Berea. And they run Paul out of there. And so Paul has to go to Athens all by himself from Athens. He dispatches Timothy to go back to Thessalonica because he's so nervous that their faith didn't take root, that the enemy was going to pluck up their root system and that they would cease to exist. And so Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. He goes down to Corinth where he sits for 18 months on ice, nervously wondering about the Thessalonian believers. What's going to happen to them? Timothy comes back, gives them a report. Paul, they love you. They miss you too. They understand it wasn't your fault that you had to go. They are doing awesome. They love you. They have questions. Paul says, what are they? And he writes a letter, 1 Thessalonians. About four or five months later, we get another anonymous reporter come in. We don't know who this person is. and says, Paul, they got your letter. They love you. They miss you. They want to see you. They're not doing so great, though. They got some more questions. And so Paul writes the letter of 2 Thessalonians only about four or five months after 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, a very brief epistle, pretty easy to follow outline. Chapter 1 is all about comfort and commendation. 
He tells them, listen, I'm so proud of you. You're doing great. You are full of genuine converts. You are growing in faith. You are increasing in love. You are steadfast in your hope. Yes, good comfort, much commendation. Chapter 2, sort of the center of the letter, is all about a clarification. Oh, you thought, because of what the Jews have been telling you, you thought that the day of judgment has begun, the day of the Lord, and you thought that the Antichrist has been revealed. No, 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 no. You haven't missed it. Things are bad, and I'm so sorry. However, God's using those afflictions, those oppositions, those sufferings to refine you and super polish you to make you fit for the kingdom. The Antichrist hasn't come. You know why? Because the Spirit of God indwells the church, and you, by how you live, act, operate, think, and love you are actually instrumental and influential and impactful in holding him back. It's not time. Which then brings us to chapter 3. If we had a commendation and a comfort, then we had a clarification. Here we're going to get a correction. So these people are wondering, gosh, if we didn't miss it, and we're gathered around the gospel because of the ministry and life and career of Christ, what are we supposed to do while we wait? I mean, we're thankful for the gospel, the gospel is why people gather. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's very good news. It's an awesome announcement, but it doesn't tell us anything about timing. Then as now, they really didn't know how much longer the Christ should shed tarry. We don't know. So what do we do? The same thing is true for our day and age. We love the gospel. We gather around the gospel. We will never grow beyond the gospel, but it doesn't tell us anything about the timing. So if you think about it, dark times of cultural resistance and opposition, societal struggle against the expanse of the gospel, there's really not that much different between what the church was experiencing in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago and what we're experiencing now. The only difference really is the internet, air fryers, and TikTok. Everything else is pretty much the same. So what are we supposed to do? That Christ has come, Christ will come again. What do we do in the meantime? Well, that's our big idea for the morning, and it goes very simply like this. Wait well. For years and years and centuries and centuries and now two millennia, the bride and the body of Jesus is to be characterized by waiting well as though he's really coming again because he is. And we tend to forget that. And so what do we do? We gather together as the bride and we remind and encourage one another. So we're in chapter 3. Of 2 Thessalonians, we're going to unpack this idea of waiting well. It's sort of broken into two little sections. First, Paul's going to sort of soften the blow a little bit. Verses 1 through 5, he's going to make a plea, a four-part plea. Let me read verses 1 through 5 all the way through, then I'll quickly unpack it. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you haven't found 2 Thessalonians yet, find Hebrews, go left, you're there. All right. Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and, do, and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is God's word. Now, I know that it's a letter from a person to some people at a place 
at a period for a purpose. And Paul was inscripturating. He knew that as an apostle, when he wrote, it was like Isaiah writing. Or when he wrote, it was like Zephaniah writing. This is God's word. It is to them, but it is for us. Paul opens up this chapter, having given them a commendation and a clarification. He's about to give them a correction. But first, he's going to say, we're in this together. He asks them, his pastoral plea is for four things. Four things. Number one, be prayerful. Right there in verses one and two. Finally, brothers. By the way, when he says finally, he ain't done. He's a preacher. He got a long way to go. When he says finally, what he means is the main section is over. Everything else now is going to be application. So he says, finally, brothers, this sibling family environment, pray for us. And they're thinking, we've been Christians for less than six months. You're the Apostle Paul. We, we pray for you. Oh, see, the Lord is not a respecter of persons. When you or I or you or you boldly approach the throne of God's grace with confidence, it is the hearer of the prayer that matters, not the vibrato in the voice of the prayer. Paul says, no, 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 no. You're in on this deal now. You, that one that I preached and proclaimed to you, he's yours and you are in him. Pray for us. Paul says, that's part of it. No matter how long you've been in the church, it's time for you to pray. So plea number one, be prayerful. We're going to have a show of hands. I wonder, as we do a quick, just informal poll, how many of you would say, gosh, you know what? I'm really, really convicted. I just spend way too much time praying. Like, all I do is just always just pray. And sometimes I go King James. Sometimes it's just like in the net version. Sometimes it's like in the amplified version. I just pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. Let me say, anybody? Anyone? No, 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 no. Isn't that interesting? Me neither. Paul says, be prayerful. Put no confidence in the flesh, he'll say in Colossians. The works of our hands left to our own devices are rubbish, he'll say in Philippians 3. Pray, literally he says, pray all around me. And he asks for prayer for two things. And I love this. He asks for prayer for two specific things. He says that the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Now, this is the news flash of the morning. Paul was Jewish. I know. He never got over it. Always a Jew, still a Jew. And so Paul knew and loved the Psalms. The Psalms were the inspired hymn book of the nation of Israel. And so when he says, pray for us, that the word of the Lord would speed ahead, he's quoting Psalms. It's just in his head. I don't know what your mind reverts to on idol when you're just driving or when you're just laying there and can't fall asleep. What does your mind revert to on idol? For the Apostle Paul, it was the Psalms. I have a hero in the faith. He says when his mind is on idle, his mind just reverts to Isaiah 43. I was asked, well, what does your mind revert to when it's on idle? Pop-tarts, 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 nachos, Pop-tarts, Pop-tarts. It's not that noble, and I'm working on that. But Paul reverts to the Psalms. He's quoting from Psalm 147.15, where the psalmist says, He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. And so Paul says, pray Pray that the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. The word is literally that the word would run swiftly. I think Paul's also a bit of a sports fan. Being not much of an athlete himself, I can relate. I think Paul loved the Olympic Games in Athens and the Isthmian Games in Corinth. And he uses those kinds of illustrations to connect with his audience there in Thessalonica. Pray for us that the word of God would run swiftly, that the word should be glorified and accepted and appreciated they received it, and it was effective. 
the Jewish opponents, it did not land with them. Pray that the Lord would speed, or the word would speed ahead and honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Deliverance from evil, wicked people. Now, he's got in mind particularly those Thessalonian oppressors from the synagogue that were persecuting the believers in Thessalonica. But Paul's also sitting in Corinth when he writes this. And we know from both of the Corinthian letters and from Acts 18 that Paul was getting absolutely pummeled by a very specific group of Jewish opponents in Corinth. They were maligning him. They were slandering him. They were saying all kinds of horrible things about him. They were trying to beat him with rods frequently. He'll write about that in Corinthians. So pray that the evil one, it's interesting, not just a societal, cultural notion or idea of evil, but that the evil one himself, the person of our enemy, would not be effective against us. That ought to tell us something, that as we try to give the gospel, we ought to receive opposition and to expect that. So he says, I'm telling you, here's my plea to you, be prayerful. The second one, be trusting the, the plea for any pastor, be prayerful, be trusting. He says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Paul says, I can't be with you all the time, but know this. God loves you. God sees you. God is for you. God will never allow you to get into a situation in which your only option is sin. You may have made a series of really bad and dangerous choices. Now all your options are hard. But God will never allow you to get into a situation where your only alternative is to sin. Why does Paul say that? Because he's sitting in Corinth where he wrote 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation. There is no temptation such as is common to man. And he will provide a way of escape. Paul's sitting in Corinth when he writes 2 Thessalonians. He knows what he's talking about. He's also going to write the book of Romans from the city of Corinth where he'll say in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or my favorite translation of that, no irredeemable harm can ever befall the child of God. Can I say that to you again? No irredeemable harm can ever befall the child of God. You might die. It's okay. It's okay. There are worse things than death. There are better things than human flourishing. Be prayerful. Be trusting. Third thing, be obedient. Verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Listen, Scripture is a command. It's not a guidebook. He says this already in chapter 1. Those that do not obey the gospel are condemned. This is God's commands in God's word. Confidence in God's word and God's wisdom and God's authority. That's What's right? So what's the congregant's responsibility to the pastor, to the leaders of the church? Obey God, not me, not us. Follow God. So be prayerful, be trusting, be obedient. Fourth thing, be growing. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What's the pastoral plea? Go and grow. God's love, see God's perseverance. May God direct your heart, your spirit, your will, your core, your mind, your chooser, may it ever increasingly be directed by him to be like him. The love of God, he says, this is a textually strange thing. Does he mean the love that God has for you or the love you have for God? And the answer is yes. It is intentionally vague to mean both. The love that God has for you compels you. The love that you have for God compels you. 
and all the necessary motivation for you to stand up against the resistance, the opposition, the struggle, and the suffering that you might encounter because of the giving of the gospel. The steadfastness of Christ, he says. What, what, what is he saying? He's saying, you never saw Jesus, but look at him. Look at him. Remember the holy, holy, holy one. Remember that John chapter 12 tells us that the one who is seated on the throne in Isaiah 6, that was Jesus. Now look at him, innocent, righteous, hanging on the cross, declared guilty. And he steadfastly stayed there for love. We too can be steadfast when we keep our eyes on Christ, not on circumstance. And that's a good lesson to live by. So he gives them that pastoral plea. Be prayerful. Be trusting. Be obedient. Be growing. Well, then that takes us to this next section where he's going to issue a very practical conclusion. Let me read this. Verses uh, 6 to almost the end. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Wow. Paul's going to pivot from that pastoral plea to productivity. He's going to talk about work. Wow, we've been really doctrinal and really theological. Now we're getting very, very practical. Well, how come? Because it's crucial and it's critical that the church wait well. You understand that? We have things we must do. We have to be busy in our work. In view of everything that Paul has said up to that point, through these two letters, this young church, he ends it with this very, very practical application to fill up all of their waking lives between the Sundays, you might say. So let's talk about work for a moment. A few just basic secular definitions. Work, the exertion or effort directed to produce or accomplish something. Another definition, something on which exertion or labor is expended, a task or undertaking. Okay, another one, productive or operative activity or Employment, as in some form of industry, especially as a means of earning one's livelihood or one's place of employment. Now, the issue of work is interesting in their day and age, and certainly in our day and age. We have a skewed work ethic. On the one hand is laziness and entitlement. And historically, every generation reaches a certain age and then automatically assumes that the, pre or the, the next generation is lazy and entitled. Can I get an Amen. <laughs> Guess what? Your parents thought the same thing about your generation. It's okay. It's a tale as old as time. But there is certainly some aspect where there is this laziness and entitlement. On the other hand, workaholism is an equal and opposite error. Busyness 
has become the new justification. You meet somebody, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Oh, great. How are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Oh, great. How are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Why? Because if we can convince one another that we're busy, then that means we actually matter. We have worth. We have value. We have significance. We have weight. We have impact. Because I'm just doing things. It's called a hamster wheel. You're tearing it up all right. You're doing nothing. Scattering cedar chips. Good on you. So that's not what we want to be about. Paul talks about not being a busybody. In the middle is this huge number of folks who still have this wrong concept of work. I used to see the bumper sticker, I owe, I owe. It's off to work, I go. In other words, this is just a ball and chain that i got to go slog through the acid mines of my existence. Ugh. Or, thank God it's Friday. Why? So I don't have to work anymore, right? That's a strange view of work. For many, it's their entire identity. For other people, work is merely the way they finance their pleasure. But as in all things with life, we want to align our thinking about a concept to God's thinking on a concept. And Scripture, as it turns out, has a very high view of work. Do you know that? Has a very high view of work. God, we know from Scripture, is a worker himself. 34 times in Psalms, his works are extolled and he is extolled for being a worker. 34 times. Jesus calls himself a worker. John 5, 15. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. We must have a high view of work because God has a high view of work. Back in Exodus chapter 20, we're told that six days you will work and then you Sabbath. Now, we tend to read that as Americans in the 21st century and go, six days of work and then Sabbath. It's not how the text is written. It is six days you get to work and produce. You get to actually create and be impactful and effective. And then you must rest. That's the biblical model of work. Well, wait, now, wait a second. Isn't work a curse? What about the fall in the book of Genesis? Well, I'm glad you asked. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So is work a product of the fall? No. Futile work is a product of the fall. All the difference in the world. See, before the fall occurs, listen to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Before sin is introduced, man's got the opportunity to be productive, to work it, to cultivate, and to curate. That's a part of being created in God's image. It's been said God designed man to be a gardener, but the fall made him a farmer. Now that's interesting. Work was always a part of the plan. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we're told that we are created in God's image. God reigns. He rules. He is sovereign. Verse 28, that is his rule of the earth. We are to be a part of that. Psalm 104, we see this entire psalm demonstrating the created order of things. God reigns. The moon shines, the lion hunts, and man works. That's how the Bible thinks of our role in the cosmos. God reigns, the moon shines, the lion hunts, man works. Now maybe we should adjust our thinking to match that of Scripture. It's a weird way for this series to end, unless what we understand is that, you know, Paul says, you little church in Thessalonica, you are a preview of the coming kingdom attraction. 
you are to resemble and reflect and represent the kingdom that has come and that is coming. So wait well. It matters. Now, this wasn't the first time that Paul had mentioned work to the little church at Thessalonica. In his first letter in chapter 4, he's already said this. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. And to aspire to live quietly, quietly, and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, why does he keep telling them this in both letters? Because they existed in a culture, in a context, in which people had the wrong idea about work. I know. The Greeks absolutely demeaned manual labor. They hated it. That was for slaves. An upstanding Greek citizen was never to work. In fact, the Greek men would grow both pinky nails really long to demonstrate that they could not work. Ew, ew, that's gross. And so if your adolescent son has a long pinky nail, you wait for him to be asleep, and you go sniff, sniff. <laughs> not in my house, Jack. But not only did the Greeks demean work, the Jewish scholars demeaned work. They would write prayers in the Talmud. Oh, God. Curse those who work, but that do not contemplate your word. We look down on them. The world for us, the pit for them. Is how the prayer in the Jewish Talmud would go. Both cultures wrongly demeaned work. Paul's going, no, you were created to be a gardener. The Greeks said that the gods hated man and work was the evidence because work was physical and therefore evil, but philosophy was spiritual and therefore good. Paul's trying to correct that with a biblical philosophy, aesthetic, and ethic of work. So, all of that on the heels of someone told them, this little church, that they had missed Jesus and that the day of the Lord was on them, and they were under judgment. And so their productivity began to wane massively. So Paul's going to walk right back through. Verse 6, let me, let me unpack this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is as strong a command as he can possibly give. That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now that word idleness is a strange word. That is the correct translation but it kind of has the idea more of uh, disorder. Uh, it, something's out of place. It's not functioning. Something's out of whack. There's a wobble in the works, you might say. Keep that in mind for later. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle. We were not disordered. We were not out of alignment when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Now, that's a little bit of a play on words. It's a Hebraism. It's a Jewish expression. You cannot make bread all by yourself. I know what you're thinking. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. You're thinking, I'll just go down to the Piggly Wiggly, get some flour, roll it out, and bake it. No, 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 no. I'm talking about an antiquity. First, you've got to till some soil. Then you've got to get some seed. Then you got to plow, then you got to plant, then you got to wait, then you got to harvest, then you got to mill, then you got to grind. By that time, you've starved to death. <laughs> Bread is always a communal food, it is always a communal meal. That's why bread's such a beautiful thing. Paul says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Oh, we could. That was the apostolic model. You, you supported the apostles as they came through, but we chose in Thessalonica not to do that. They do in Corinth. 
not in Thessalonica. We wanted, he says, to leave you a pattern, a, a die cast that you could look at and you could repeat. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This was a, apparently a, a saying that Paul would go around and he would, he would sort of idiomatically teach to the churches. But to be very, 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 very clear, this is not about people who cannot work. This is about people who will not work because of a misunderstanding of doctrine or theology. And this has nothing to do, I might add, with a paycheck. There are stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads who are working way harder than I ever will. It's not about a paycheck. It's not about those who cannot work because of a disability or because of a financial hardship or something that's happened. It's about those who choose to not work because of an errant thought or philosophy or theology or doctrine. Paul is very, very clear about that. Why? Because he wants the church to be a preview of the coming kingdom attraction. The church must wait well. Verse 11, here's the, here's the correction. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. I love this. Paul makes up a word. He takes three separate words, and he smashes them together to create this word of busybodies. You're not actually doing anything, but you're doing a lot. You're just always in people's business. You're like, hey, 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 what's going on? What's going on over there? Hey, you got any food? Hey, did you have some bread? And you're just always doing stuff, but you're never actually accomplishing anything. You're loud. You're making a lot of waves, but you're not actually providing or producing anything. Here's that word again in verse 11, idleness. It's this idea of disorder. Something's out of whack. There's a wobble in the works. I've never actually been to Cirque du Soleil. I just feel like that's way too many French Canadians in one room. It's kind of weird. I don't know. I've never really even purposefully gone to a ballet, although I did get bait and switched into going to see the Nutcracker, and I'm thinking it's Christmas, and all of a sudden there's dudes in tights flying all over the stage. Total bait and switch, but it was amazing to see these ballet performers, and they're in perfect synchronicity and unison. And so even a punk from the panhandle of Texas is watching this going, <gasps> kind of gasping, wow, he just threw that 57-pound girl across the county. That was unbelievable. And this, he, she was caught, and then this guy's doing a triple Lindy, and wow, and it's in perfect harmony and synchronicity, and it's just Wow, it's incredibly choreographed, and there's so much harmony and precision, and it makes you gasp. But there's one guy over in the corner, and he's over there, and he's doing the robot. And, he, and then he starts doing, like, Cossack kicks. You're like, what the, what is that guy doing? That's disorder. That's the word that Paul has in mind here. There's something that doesn't fit. There's a whole group of people that are doing the same thing for the same reason, for the same glorious king. But then Holmes is over here just doesn't fit. What are you doing? You're making us look bad. No one's looking at the whole group now. Now they're watching Mr. Roboto. So stop that. And so Paul will continue. He's not saying kick him out and excommunicate him as some of the early church was misunderstanding. He's like, no, no. Put him back in the wings. Get him off stage. Put him in the locker room. That is conduct not befitting the expression of the kingdom. So much is at stake. Do you understand? Where will the kingdom of Christ be demonstrated and declared if not in our word and our work? I'm not talking about your W-2. Please hear me. But the church is that group of people who are gathered intentionally and volitionally proactively 
to express and extend the kingdom aesthetic and ethic in this fallen and dark world. So Paul says it's a big deal. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a military, not a suggestion, not advice. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary. Bad translation. This ESV says, in doing good. No, it's of doing good. We all grow weary in doing good. That means you're doing good. And it is wearisome. Thanks be to God, there's also rest. There is sleep. There is Sabbath. Don't grow weary in doing good. Grow weary of doing good. You are always going to need to do good. Don't go worry of doing that. Verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Again, not ostracized, not excommunicated. This is church discipline. And candidly, I would rather eat a light bulb than do church discipline. But too much is at stake to not. Do you see? Now, in our day and age, when in this county alone, there are 89 Southern Baptist churches. 89! Just in this county. I'm not even talking about all the other denominations. If sometimes we say, hey, we don't think that's conduct, you know, that's appropriate with a, with a believer, they'll go, fine, I'll go choose for one of the other 162 churches. Bye. 2,000 years ago, this was your people. And if you were ostracized or if you were shunned, it was a death sentence. It was a very serious deal. This is how you got your food because more than likely, your business has been taken. Your home has been taken down. So this was a very, very serious deal. Like, hey, this is not conduct that is becoming. You didn't miss Christ. The day the Lord is not upon you. Wait well. Get back to work. Do not regard him as an enemy, however, but warn him as a brother. The church is to wait well. So let me give you three very quick practical principles that are all hopefully portable for each of us before we walk out of here. And then we'll benedict. Wait well, church. That's what we are to be about. Number one goes like this. Your work matters to God. It does. No matter what it is, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing. Our culture values celebrity, but our God values and honors faithfulness. Most of us would rather be known and recognized and live a life of pampered luxury so that we could have whatever we wanted whenever we want it. But the truth is we're dangerously unqualified for that job. We would destroy ourselves in no time. We say this all the time, but our good work, anytime you see good works in Scripture, it's not just helping someone across the street. Our good work is gardening. Strictly speaking, gardening is taking the resources made available by God and rearranging them in such a way to bless the community. That's what we're all about. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. So please hear that again. And let me say it again. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. And so one of the ways we can demonstrate the coming of the kingdom is by demonstrating that it actually has come already. The ethic and the aesthetic of the kingdom literally touches and transforms how and why we do our work. And it may seem like nobody knows or notices or cares what you do, but the Lord does. And your work can be worship. He notices, and he can, and he will use it for his purpose. We are most like our creator when we peer into the void of our calendar and we say, in a sense, let there be. When have you done that? Let there be. 
That then fuels our prayer life and our devotional life. Everything we do from great and mighty to the hidden and mundane is because Jesus is worth it. Stacking up these chairs. We've had some excitement with our new buildings. Those toilets and fixtures are not made for 21st century people. And so there's been a lot of uh, unplugging in those toilets. And we, Jesus, you're worth this. Jesus, you are worth this. You better be. He is. Whatever it is that you're doing in hiddenness and obscurity, Jesus is worth it. And you get to preach little sermons to your soul and be reminded that Jesus is worth it and your work matters to God. If that's not your attitude about work, that's okay. There's grace for that. Repent. Rethink your thinking such that it will be rethunk. It really is a kingdom expression, what you do. Second, goes like this. Your work mustn't be an idol. That idol is that thing that sits in the center of your soul, that if you lose that, you would think, well, that's it, I can't go on. Your work matters to God, but it's not God. It matters massively, but it is not the thing that sits and gives you identity, meaning, purpose, and life. Your work, even my work, cannot, must be our identity. Christ is my identity, and until he should return, I will use my skills and talents and passions and gifts to do what he's called me to do, and so too must you. But he is the point and not the thing that you're doing. Sometimes it seems that we get so fixated on the finger pointing to the moon that we forget that there's a moon there at all. Now, this is just the indicator that there is a God, this work that I do. Yes, work is a gift, and we're to maintain that mindset. It's not the most important thing in our life, but it does matter. We have to have balance. And so your work mustn't be an idol. Thirdly, your work means you aren't idle. See what I did there? Freaking proud. Your work mustn't be an idol, but thirdly, your work means you aren't idle. Our generation has grown through this largely, but there's a few decades in the late 20th century when everybody was reading end times books and everyone said, oh, 84 reasons he's coming back in 84. Surprise, he didn't. I remember my parents pulled me out of school as though Jesus couldn't get through an elementary school. What? And they're like, well, we don't have to mow the lawn this week because Jesus is coming. Stop it. He loves cut grass. Wait well. Don't be idle. Until such time, and no one knows the date or the hour. So wait well, be productive. Now listen, there's a reason we aren't instantly raptured into heaven once we're converted. We, as individuals, are still in the process of being polished and refined and sanctified. But not only that, we are also being fitted together with other believers to evidence the kingdom and how we orchestrate and move and work and make bread together. It matters. The church is to be that organization that, in a sense, causes others to gasp in awe as they see the precision of execution and harmony and synchronicity of kingdom ministry just as though they were watching a professional ballet. We have to be intentionally engaged. Jesus is worth it. And so this church, like the little church of Thessalonica, needs to be characterized by waiting well. Yes, we eagerly await our king to appear, but until he does, we work and we wait well. If Jesus was coming back tomorrow, wouldn't you want to be found being productive? Yeah. We must work. We must worship. It matters. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a little church in Thessalonica that only 20 years prior, a man stepped out of Nazareth in hiddenness, in obscurity, 
And only 20 years later, after his career and ministry came to a close, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in the eastern basin of the Mediterranean world, these people in Europe were calling him Lord and Christ and King. Now that's marvelous. Right in the navel of the Roman Empire, their allegiance was to him. In the same way, all sorts of things are vying for our heart's affection and our mind's attention. We get to see how they reacted to the word of God, to the work of God, and we wait well, which is why we get this marvelous little benediction from the Apostle Paul. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself... <laughs> it's the only time he's ever called that. This is Paul being Jewish. May the Lord of shalom himself. What's Paul saying? Your shalom is not your project. Your peace is not your project. It comes only through grace. Get to work. He's worth it. He is the Lord of shalom, of wellness, of wholeness. May he himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then Paul, this is so good. Such a human moment. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuine, genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Apparently, he had written them many other letters. We only have these two. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And the good news is the gospel says that it is. Let's pray together, and then we'll have a benediction and be dismissed. Father, thank you for this little letter to this little church, these little people but that you are a great big God. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone this morning who does not know you, who is still trying to eke out an existence by either working or not working, that you would convince them, persuade them, give them the gift of faith, that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that his word is true and his work is sufficient to take away their sin to infuse and inject and impute righteousness so that they can have right standing before you. Oh, that's a lot to consider. But would you open hearts and minds to believe that very thing? For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of what we're here for, to express, to evidence, to expand the kingdom, not to get our way, not to change the political landscape, but Christ is king and he's coming again. And so would you give us courage and enthusiasm to wait well. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And even so, we claim we'd love to see him again soon. So we pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.